Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to another episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain on Revolution Radio. Making smarter financial decisions with your host, Rob Delson, former Fox News host and anchor at Roundtable Media with his team of market masters, Mark Lepresti, Managing Director of Mineta Advisory Partners, Co-Founder of Battlefin, Leading Data Platform, and a former Institutional Equities Trader at Lehman Brothers. Alex Massioli, Founder of Trade the Chain, Former Head of Institutional Prime Brokerage at Bquant. John Nigerian, Co-Founder of Market Rebellion, Former Co-Host of Halftime Report on CNBC, and Co-Founder of Option Monster and Trade Monster. Daily data insights and ticker updates direct from three of the world's top TradFi legal and crypto experts on Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain every Monday and Friday on all your favorite platforms. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody. This is Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain, B3, as we like to call it. You are B3 Nation. We are the hosts bringing you, as always, the best insights we can on TradFi, DeFi, Crypto, Web3, all of it. This is our Sunday edition, 5.30 Eastern. We do it Tuesday and Thursday, also at 5.30. Follow us at GetRevRadio. Tweet out the space. We And remember to follow everybody who's speaking and stick around. At the end, in an hour, we have the Beyond B3 show where you guys get to be part of a bigger conversation about everything we've been talking about and some new topics as well. Julie Lamb will be hosting it. She always makes it a really great experience, so stick around for that. Mark Lepresti, Verajet is 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 still flying with us. And I saw, by the way, that what, that Michael Weinberg had a little Verajet experience. Tell us about Verajet, our our. Uh, our sponsor for today. Sure, Rob. Well, people that have listened to the show before have heard about Verajet. This is a company that we're very involved with. We, we're investors, we're advisors, uh, John and myself, and in, in, uh, specifically in one of our one of our other capacities, we have lots of jobs. Entrepreneurs always have more than one job. But this is a company that runs a fleet of a just incredible aircraft. I'm talking, of course, of the Cirrus SF-50 Vision Jet. This is one of the uh, most advanced and safest aircraft in the sky in any class. It is a jet plane. It's not a prop or a turboprop. Single jet engine um, carries uh, five passengers and a pilot in the most fuel-efficient, safest way possible. It famously has a parachute, not for the passengers, but for the entire plane itself. At any time that it's been deployed, everyone walked away. Um, this plane's been around for a number of years now. It's in its version five, I believe, and they're just proud to have about 22 of these things. And what they do is they uh, fill the need for short-haul aviation where the commercial airlines and other private jet solutions do not offer something at anywhere near that level of affordability uh, or comfort or luxury. So uh, to help promote Verjet and have the B3 Nation learn more about the incredible service that they offer, we are doing the sweepstakes. We are giving away free rides on one of our SF-50 Vision Jets. The route will be determined, but it would probably be something like New York City area to Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard, or we often go from South Florida down to Miami. Excuse me, yes, from South Florida, Miami, down to the Bahamas. You mentioned um, Mike Weinberg. Uh, his family flew down to the Bahamas on one of them uh, just the day before yesterday, and we'll be flying back on one. So... Folks, if you'd like to uh, experience uh, a Verajet and the uh, service that this company provides and the incredible luxury of an SF-50 Sirius Vision Jet, go to the link that's pinned in the crow's nest. You can enter our worst travel experience giveaway. You have to give a little bit of a blurb on your worst possible travel experience, and you will be entered to win a free ride in a private jet. And Rob, I don't know anybody else in the Twitter sphere that's giving away private jet rides like we are here at B3. It's pretty cool. I think we're the only ones. Even Elon's not giving away private jet rides yet. So 
he's going to have to and, catch and, up. And it sounds like he could, right? I mean, it's not like he couldn't. I mean, I think he owns a space company, so yeah. <laughs> if you're listening, Elon, <laughs> join in. We'll we'll give you a mic anytime. So we got a fun week ahead. We're going to talk about that in a second. This is our Sunday kind of catch-up, wrap-up show. We are going to be talking about the blowout jobs report, which Mark is going to tell you means rate hikes are almost a certainty, although he's already said they were. We're going to bring back up the retail bulls versus the institutional bears um, in conversation. We're going to talk about the Winklevoss twins. And is Coinbase, are the execs bailing out early? We'll talk about all of that, but we like to start it out with catching up on things and looking at the week ahead. So, Mark, we got a big week, right? Earnings season's kicking off. Tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to believe that we're in earnings season again. It seems like we just came out of earnings season, and I think part of the reason for that is that we do have companies, particularly when we're in between Q1 and Q2 earnings season, of course, we're going to be talking this week about companies reporting second quarter earnings, because we have those companies that operate on an other than December 31 standard fiscal year calendar. So when they report, as they do in between Q1 and Q2 earnings, it almost feels like we're just going through earnings season right from Christmas, you know, past into 4th of July and into the summer. Um, we do have uh, earnings, uh, Q2 earnings kicking off this week. Um some interesting stuff, some of the banks reporting on Friday, which is important, uh, ConAgra, Constellation Brands, some other consumer-facing companies like Pepsi as well on Thursday, Delta Airlines, a really important one to see how that summer of George is panning out that I've always talked about. But we've also got quite a lot of important economic data coming out this week. It's important in part because, of course, we are coming off of last week where we had that absolute blow the doors off jobs number that surprised everyone myself included i'll raise my hand and say i did not see that one coming almost twice what the street was expecting in terms of job growth not what j powell wants to see in his decision as to whether or not to hike rates to fight inflation rob as you know i've been saying since the skip sorry the pause uh, at the last ofmc meeting i've been indicating that we had two hikes coming this way or coming our way before the end of the year the market now pricing in a 90 or 95% when I last looked at the futures on Friday, a virtual certainty that that's going to happen. So we're going to look at things like the June CPI, that consumer price index, incredibly important, coming out on Wednesday. Also, along with CPI print on Wednesday, we'll be getting the PPI, the producer price index. And as our brilliant B3 Nation listeners know, these are some of the most important gauges that the Fed looks at to determine the direction of inflation. And as many of our listeners will also know, they are lagging, they are dated. It's data that I do not believe gives the Fed the right indication. But it is what it is, and it's important, so we watch it too. We've got a few other things. Monday, we've got uh, wholesale inventories, consumer inflation expectations for June, and importantly, used car prices. We had Tom Lee on, our good friend, the incredible market strategist and analyst from Fundstrat on Thursday's show with us for 30, 40 minutes uh, debating uh, with me whether or not we're in a recession, how far we are, we're going to have a soft landing, a rolling landing, what have you. And I can tell you, Rob, uh, Tom Lee actually taught me the importance some time ago of used car prices as an indication of where things are. If used car prices continue to remain Red hot. They've eased off a little bit, but they're still red hot. That's not a good thing in terms of the overall inflation picture. Tuesday, we've got the Business Optimism Index report for June. Uh, the Beige Book release on Wednesday the 12th, for those of you that celebrate. And that's what's in the weekend. I could go on, but I think I'm eating into Dr. J's time. No, is Dr. J's not, is Mike, is Dr. J's mic on yet? I don't Doesn't look like it. it. All right, so let me ask you a question, Mark. Um, this is just a totally out out of left field, but not totally. I saw you say Friday Wells Fargo. I'm guessing they're they're doing their earnings, right? That's right. So we have a bunch so, of banks so, reporting on Friday, Rob. So yeah. just talk to the B3 Nation for a second. This was a question I had late last night. What is up with Wells Fargo? They are yet again in trouble with misrepresent. How many times can this bank continue to 
keep like misusing customers' assets, making up, you know, fake loans for customers that don't exist. And and they it's like another one coming up. Is that going to affect their earnings? And they're such a big bank and everyone keeps saying, oh, they just like wash and repeat or rinse and repeat or whatever that phrase is. Uh, well, listen, Rob, I, I got to tell you, man, um, you, you said it right. Uh, th th this is the Deutsche Bank of, of the Americas, right? Because <laughs> on the other side of the pond, it's Deutsche that can't seem to stay out of the regulatory crosshairs. Wells Fargo, Famously, famously uh, in trouble uh, over and over again. One of the big ones uh, that I often talk about and point to is the scandal that involved them opening thousands of accounts on people's behalf without people knowing about them. So salespeople could reach their sales targets. Unbelievable. And there was knowledge of that that went all the way up to the top. And um, listen, you know, it seems to me that that story uh, is, is continuing. This is not something that's going to be part of the earnings, um, obviously, because I, I think this is this is recent news and, and the earnings are historical, right, for, for Q2. But we could definitely see it take a drag on the stock on this news uh, coming into this week, this important week, when it's going to be reporting its Q2 earnings on Friday. Um, yeah. And you know why I asked it, Mark? Because I saw, as I'm sure you did in B3 Nation, they this time it's coming from inside the bank where people, people you know, staff or employees are saying they're being told to have bilingual um, bilingual marketers who talk to Latino, you know, people trying to get mortgages and stuff and offer them more expensive products, not certain products and not tell them they're offering the more expensive products. And I'm, I'm again, I'm like, wow, you just keep getting caught. And the, it seems to just be like, it's okay. Yeah. It's, um, this, this one's really, really scary, Rob. And, and the, the details I think, as you're, you're pointing out are around that. They were using consultants, not just employees, but consultants who were bilingual to essentially steer Spanish-speaking, non-English-speaking customers and potential customers into costlier products, essentially preying on a perceived lack of financial sophistication. And I say perceived because just because you don't speak English, you know, and I've traveled to 63 countries, I can tell you, there's lots of places in the United States or beyond the United States that have higher levels of financial literacy than we do. And a lot of them are Spanish speaking. So, uh, but this is really, really, it's ugly, uh, particularly, you know, in the current political environment. There, of course, is a corresponding uh, class action, um, a, a civil class action, uh, which, which I expect to be resolved in the favor of the plaintiffs. I expect Wells Fargo to write a big check, probably with a B, and that will ultimately impact earnings. But again, this is not going to be uh, reflected in this in earnings coming out on Friday because it's it's for Q2. Of course, this is recent news, uh, but the stock I do expect to get beat up on news of yet another really just um, uh, inexplainable scandal at Wells Fargo. Well, and you know, this is a good moment to shift. We're, we're waiting for John to get his mic on, so let's jump ahead to crypto overview because Alex and Nick, Alex, obviously. Only crypto firms need regulation because clearly Wells Fargo is doing everything right. I mean, how many times can you go bad and you still get a, get a free pass? But don't be in the crypto space. We give you no margin for error. Just venting for a second there. But we had some light trading in crypto this weekend. What's going on? We did. Let me tell you something real quick, though. Uh, one is, you know, the amount of bees uh, that traditional banks have written uh, their checkbooks to regulators is astounding if you go back even just to uh, the last 20 years. So, um, and, and real quickly on the TradFi markets, I love when Mark covers the used car prices. It's something that uh, I like to cover as well. Um, and we're seeing a very interesting time in used car prices and new car prices, well, new car production. Uh, apparently, you know, new car, there's going to be a glut of new car inventory, even while used car prices are going up. We took a little dip in used car prices back in uh, March and April, but then they've started to climb up ever since then, and that's leaving new car uh, over inventories. Uh, they say they're going to, it's about 6%, leaving over 5 million new vehicles that are going to require price cuts or become, go into the used car uh, market altogether. Um, interestingly enough, the EV, which Mark does cover a lot as well for everybody here, uh, you get Ford 
is just having a crap of a time as huge declines and Volkswagen down 30% uh, in EV cars. So it's going to be interesting to see how new cars turn into used cars quickly with no miles on them. But moving into crypto, very, very light day. Uh, right now, let's see here. We got uh, rather light trading crypto and this weekend total uh, crypto market cap is at 1.18 trillion on only 19.2 billion in trading volume. Total tweet volume is up 14% though, and daily sentiment is neutral at 46 out of 100 on the tradethechain.com dashboards. Moving on to Bitcoin, we're, we are nearly dead even on price for the last 24 hours. Uh, 30,160 with only 7.6 billion trading hands. Trading volume down a whopping 50%. Uh, today, Ethereum standing strong at 1,867, nudging up a little over a point on 4.3 billion in volume. But overall, we've been range bound, which I'm sure is driving a lot of traders nuts today. And uh, we could talk to Nick a little, you know, later on, but I'm sure he's pulling out his hair. Things get boring for him. I uh, want to recap a few outliers, which we've been covering uh, on the show, though, and that's Verge ticker XVG up 6.9% today. 365% for the last 30 days and compound finance, which I have repeated probably during the last six or eight episodes of 12.9% on day 86% for the last 30 days. So that's where the alpha is. Hey, Alex, what's, what's the deal with, with Bitcoin being so low, the, the minus 50%, is there any rhyme or reason to that in its trading volume? We, we typically have low volume weekends, so uh, that's the way the nature of the beast has been. You know, people like to jump in their pools or go skiing down slopes. Um, this one was a was was a very thin, fifty percent volume down. But um, as I've covered on shows past, up until the, uh, the month of June, really, um, we'd seen the clients going through the banking crisis uh, and then going into May. But then what we did see was a reversal. We saw uh, institutional crypto have its largest uh, week of inflows ever in June, um, for the and that was the largest ever for the last year uh, since the bankruptcies of all the uh, crypto counterparties a year ago this uh, this past week. Um, but volume had been going up, and now we've just taken a little Fourth of July, uh, you know, vacation month break. I'm not worried about of, it. A Fourth of July vacation. Hey, Nick Mancini, real quick, it would not be fair if I did not have you get you since you're sitting, you know, Alex is talking about Bitcoin, you know, just above 30,000, Ethereum staying strong at, you know, 18, a little over 1,800, almost 1,900. Give us, for B3 Nation, if you're a new listener, um, Nick Mancini from, from the research desk at Trade the Chain has a fascinating way of charting the points of Bitcoin and Ethereum where he thinks things will happen and move, and he's been pretty accurate. So where are we at right now, Nick? We're still under 31. Yeah, appreciate you bringing me in, Rob. And it, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't take my own shot uh, at the institutional banks as I worked for Deutsche Bank when they received the largest fine in banking history. I believe it was about seven or eight Bs at the time. And that was what prompted me to actually leave industry. So I, I just had to step in with that one if everybody's going to gonna take their shots. But as it pertains for Bitcoin and Ethereum price action, um, the big news you know, around price action that I think we'll discuss later that got mentioned earlier is related to some some coinbase share selling by executives but as it looks uh for us on the desk you know those magic numbers are still 31.5k for bitcoin for bullish continuation and 29.5k for bearish uh bearish shift i should say uh for ethereum those numbers are a little bit different uh 1975 right now is what we need for bullish continuation for for Ethereum and uh, the bear the support. So if if it breaks the 1830 level, then we would likely see a, a bearish shift in the markets for Ethereum. So that's what we're looking at now. I've got a couple of points for later on in the session, but don't want to spoil it too early for you, Rob. No, no, keep keep the keep the gunfire for later. Um, this is Bulls Bears and Blockchain Twitter Spaces. We do this Tuesday and Thursday at 5.30 Eastern, and this is our Sunday weekend edition, which we also conveniently do at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time, so you can just keep one time in your calendars. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Retweet out the space if you like what you're hearing, and follow all of our speakers. And John, the Jerry, and Dr. J, we got his mic up. 
Happy uh, belated 4th of July, John. What's the fantastic futures in the week ahead looking like for you? Well, I, I got to think, Rob, that uh, we're going to continue to see some pretty interesting moves, mainly because, you know, we finished the first half of 2023 and we've got the financial stocks, mainly because of that big hit that they took in March, uh, still one of the weaker sectors in the S&P 500. So energy is the weakest by far, down 9%. But healthcare is down about 5% in the first half of the year. People will be watching those sectors in particular, Rob, the financial stocks, to see if maybe after we get further and further away from that um, regional bank meltdown that took, you know, the likes of Silvergate and a number of others, first, you know, that one that I can't even speak of anymore, FRC, um, there's a lot of those that, that have made significant rebounds uh, to only be down 2% on the year, the financial sector. But there are also a lot of them that are still struggling. And we'll see with the uh, move by uh, some of the strong numbers that we've seen lately, the Fed seems more and more certain that maybe Mark's going to get what he had called for, not what he wants, but what he called for, which is another rate increase by the Fed, and that's certainly one of the big drivers of that 4% hurdle that we made it through on the 10-year note last week. I think Mark thinks they're going to get two more, right, Mark? Two more. You, you, not that yeah. it's either one of them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think we go more than 25 at the next meeting, but I don't think it's 25 and done. I think we've got two more hikes this year, as I've said. Um, Dr. J, anything you're looking at next week for uh, you know future forecast, no futures in particular, anything you like? And if you want, I don't know if you heard us earlier, John, we were talking about the trad banks and how they get away, you know, the new Wells Fargo debacle. Um, if you do want to weigh in, obviously, on why big banks seem to just continue to, you know, get away, just write a big check to make up for their for their sins, while, you know, the regulators seem very focused on on other things like crypto companies yeah well you you saw what mark cuban or perhaps you guys saw i bet alex and nick saw that mark cuban was really you know uh enthusiastically supporting japan with their uh crypto regulation rather than crypto enforcement that we get here with no regulation at all hardly um you know a, a week ago we were hoping that that rumor of gensler quitting would have been true um, it didn't play out, uh, but I still hope that that guy either gets removed or quit um, because he is just doing a ton of damage uh, to the digital asset space. Um, it seems, Rob, that we might see um, the uh, because of Friday's jobs report, that was the weakest um, jobs report in more than two years. Um, I know people think when they hear 209,000 jobs added, uh, they figure, oh, that's great. Well, first of all, 80-some-odd thousand of those were by the government um, in that jobs report. That doesn't mean those are bad jobs. It just means that, by the way, we've already passed a trillion dollars more in debt since that negotiation of the debt ceiling hike uh, passed just over a month ago. We've already put on another trillion dollars in debt. And, you know, job creation, I know that's what they want to point to, but my gosh, um, we keep digging this hole deeper and faster, Rob, uh, as far as the U.S. debt to GDP ratio. Well, what, let's talk about that. Let's you know, start with you, John. You know, Janet Yellen, obviously, you know, putting up a red flag saying, you know, I wouldn't, you know, almost suggesting the U.S. recession is, is perhaps appropriate and normal, but certainly not putting it out of reach. And now you're talking, you both, you and, and Mark talked about the, the jobs report, making heights a certainty. What do you think of Janet Yellen's comments that, that you know, recession's not off the table? A, what does it mean that she's saying it? B, what is likely to happen because she's saying it? Well, um, I think it's a recognition of what Mark and I, and I believe Alex as well, have been saying about the likelihood of a recession, partly driven by what the Fed is doing right now. 
I can't give them 100% of the blame, but certainly there's going to be a lot of pain that will be dealt um, if indeed they keep, and if Mark's right about two more hikes of 25 pips, um, that'll put us, uh, you know, in a pretty precarious position, I believe, Rob. And I think she's just sort of uh, um, preparing people for what many of us see, um, because I don't see this just booming economy right here. I see opportunities, and a number of them will be in of course, companies that are able to cut jobs rather than create jobs, um, and that much of that will be through, uh, quite frankly, you know, AI taking jobs away that otherwise would be in journalism, would be um, in many of the data and analytics companies, because as Mark knows, as a co-founder of Battlefin, data is fantastic, but it's an awful lot of stuff to crunch through, and we use computers to do that. But now if instead of a computer being used by a human, it's a computer search done by an artificial intelligence, those are jobs that are going to be lost. Um, so I, I think that AI is a wonderful thing. I'm actually in the camp that thinks it is, but I think that it will have a major impact. Um, and perhaps Ms. Yellen and some of the other people in government are starting to realize that. Yeah, you, you know what, John? I, I think I don't know who I just talked over, so I apologize. But I've been giving a lot of thought to Ed Yardani's comments that we were actually also sort of landscaping against the, the commentary made by the great Tom Lee that was with us on Thursday of this concept of a quote unquote rolling recovery. And I don't know about you or, or Nick or Alex, but having given that a little bit more thought since Thursday and Friday, I think that's probably a really good way of describing how we're going to go through the next two quarters. What do you think about that? Well, certainly we could. Um, and uh, I, I think, um, like I said, Mark, I'm, I'm definitely in the uh, optimistic camp, but I'm not in the camp that says this is a booming economy because in my mind it's not. Um, I'd love to see evidence of it, but I see more and more uh, areas where, you know, we're, we're still outside of that big government push, this uh, jobs report, we're still really just seeing service sector jobs. Um, and obviously, with the lowest job creation in, like I, we both said, over two years, I think that means that we're going to see... Um, uh, perhaps even a slackening from there, you know, maybe into the 190s, 180s, 170s, as far as job creation. And that isn't good. Um, it's not the same as the inversion of the yield curve that we covered a lot in the past few weeks because of the stretch that we've seen of uh, two years flying above the 10-year. But the 10-year making a 10% move last week was pretty big when we went you know, roughly from 370 to 409, even though we finished the week, I think at 4.06 something, um, it's still over 10 and a quarter, 10 and a half percent move on those rates in a week. And I think they're going to push that significantly higher than that if indeed we get two more rate hikes. So let me ask you guys something based on all of this, right? So we talk a lot about this. So help me understand something. I'm not being facetious here. The Fed raises interest rates, right? Then that means banks charge more for their overnight loans. They're not going to take that on themselves, so they pass it off to consumers, right? So theoretically, consumers now get higher, you know, they it costs them more. Their mortgage rates go up, their credit cards, their auto loans, et cetera. In theory, right, we're supposed to spend less, and then businesses can't charge as much, so inflation pushes down. But Mark, you keep saying we're not spending less and mortgage rates haven't been tracking consistently with the increase in interest rates. So what's actually going on here? I mean, are, is this part of what you mean by the rolling recovery? I mean, what is actually kind of happening in between there? Because it doesn't well, appear to be working. Well the, well, the rolling recovery is a related but separate concept. Uh, and I think what's going on, Rob, is, is that the American consumer had more savings than I think I and a lot of the market anticipated, had more credit left available to them on their credit cards than I and a lot of the rest of the market had anticipated, and had the willingness to continue to spend on those experiences 
uh, way more. I thought last summer was the end of it. I really did. And I've admitted that, and I've admitted that publicly that I was wrong about that call in a very big way. But where, what worries me, and, and this is related to something that John was talking about in covering the jobs numbers from last week, those blowout jobs numbers, if the biggest component of growth, which it was, is in services, and the biggest subcomponent of the services category is in non-core, okay, which means services you don't necessarily need, right? Like entertainment and travel-related services and things like that. If that's where the job growth has been coming from, and I believe it was like more almost half the, the total number of like the 497 total, if I'm remembering the numbers correctly, then when that consumer spending on non-core services ends, what happens to those jobs, right? And if we wind up seeing a, a, another sort of wholesale amount of layoffs in the non-core services sector while we're trying to come through this you know, recovery from the recession, which I believe we are in. I've said that many times before. The concept of are we going to have one and all this, I think, is nonsense. We've been in a technical recession for a while now. But if it's if it's the non-core services, and, and listen, this is also an area that Chairman Powell specifically uh, called out in his uh, comments during the press conference after the last FOMC meeting when they decided to do that hawkish pause that we talk so much about. So uh, I'm very concerned about that against the backdrop of a, a, a situation of credit contraction, which is, of course, what you and John were just talking about, right? Feds the, the banks essentially passing along the higher cost of capital to the consumers, which is exactly what they do, which is another reason why all those used cars that Alex was, or those new cars, sorry, that Alex is talking about are going to be sitting on the lot a lot longer than the auto manufacturers would like because we don't have the availability of auto credit for a new car the same way we did a year, two years, or three years ago. Also, to hop in on on the heels of that, I think a lot of thing a lot of times I have not seen this mentioned, but a majority of the layoffs were from flush financial services and tech companies that could afford to you know send people off with exit packages anywhere from three to six months. All of that happened three to six months ago or a little bit less. So we're still seeing people paid for not working. And of course, we're in the summer. So we're still seeing a lot of spending and travel because people are, you know, have the ability to still move and have fun and do things, you know, mentioning also the the savings that were a little bit higher than expected. So um, I think, you know, looking at the market and, and, and such, you know, kind of comparing economy versus market, I think it does make sense that we see a bit of a summer pause as the market begins to digest okay these people are no longer getting paid there's not as many jobs available but there's still a 3.6 unemployment rate so if these people do not pick up jobs by the end of the summer then more bad things will happen and the fed will may have to take a little bit more control so that's kind of how i'm looking at things right now because i still think there's an excess amount of money in the economy from people quite literally being paid to not do anything because the companies that laid them off were extremely flush with massive amounts of free cash flow it all comes together right here on bull squares and blockchain you guys we go full circle we bring it all the way around even inverted yield curves this is our Sunday edition, 5.30 Eastern, Tuesday, Thursday, 5.30 Eastern as well. Follow us at Get Rev Radio, tweet out the space, follow all of our speakers, and stick around in, in, in about 30 minutes, 25 minutes for the Beyond V3 show with Julie Lamb, where you guys get to participate. Quick final question on this before we talk about the retail bulls versus the institutional bears. What is it possible, the way we were talking about the whole debt ceiling thing, that the market is at this point, Mark, John, Alex, whoever wants to weigh on it, and has decided in a recession, not in a recession, in a rolling recovery, not in a rolling recovery. We've sort of we don't care what you call it. We've adapted to it. We kind of see where it's going, and as a result, we are more bullish. We are going to be more bullish. Meaning, regardless of what the Fed actually does, since everybody I, is pretty convinced think, what they're. Um, I'll throw this out there. I think that. Um, when we heard the Fed, you know, uh, voice through Powell and a couple speakers say that, you know, uh, we we're pretty sure we're going to keep going on rates. We're going to keep increasing the interest rate that we charge banks, the Fed funds rate. Um, and uh, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that was the gist of it. And yet they have um, a full one percent or 100 bips of cuts according to their dot plot next year. 
the market is hanging on that. Um, and I guess that's, we've used this analogy before, but um, if you're running out of oxygen, um, it's one thing to know that that hose or that tank is right outside and you can grab it and, you know, start uh, using that oxygen to stay alive. It's a whole nother thing if that oxygen is six months down the road. So in other words, these hundred bips of cuts, when are those, you know, the dot plot, uh, does it say that we're going to see those in the first part of next year, 2024? I don't believe so. Um, I, even though they have said that we're going to see those cuts, um, according to, again, that dot plot, um, I think that we're more likely to um, see, you know, perhaps that they don't apply any cuts until late second quarter next year, um, if they even start cutting then. And that's a long, drawn-out time for people that are paying much higher rates for, for not just one or two months, but perhaps for six or seven months or longer. In other words, that pause just kind of continues once we finally get to a peak, which might be, you know, five and a half percent or wherever. Um, once we get there, it's a question of how long before those cuts kick in. When does the oxygen get turned back out? It's a perfect segue, Mark, to the question of why the retail, you know, why retail is it, investors are so bullish and yet institutional investors are a little more bearish if I'm framing that right. I know you've looked at some stuff, Vander Research kind of putting some stuff out there about it. What's going on? Why? And we talked about this before. Why do you think there's a disparity there? Is there a disparity? And why are retail investors so bullish? Well, you know, Rob, um, it's something that I like us to track regularly uh, to sort of see where if there is dislocation, and there and there very frequently is, dislocation in market sentiment between institutions and retail, because that has oftentimes indicated that either you know the top is in or the bottom is in, essentially the inverse of what retail believes. And so this is an important factor to be tracking. This research, when I saw the numbers come out on Friday, was something I was hoping we would have the opportunity to talk about today because it is indicating that bullish sentiment among retail investors is as high as it's been since early 2001, if I remember correctly. At the same time, I wouldn't say institutions are going full bear, but they're definitely reducing and have been steadily reducing allocations or exposure to U.S. equities over the past several months. So not ready to reach a conclusion from this, but these are the kind of numbers that I, I watch, and it's the kind of numbers that I want our B3 Nation to watch as well, as all of these things are good indicators of where we're headed. So again, I don't have significantly bearish it's bearish sentiment from the reduce from the reduction uh, in exposure to u.s equities from institutional managers but it's not screaming at me yet rob i i love to hop in with one thing just to kind of make a, a bit of a joke at the mainstream media as we love to do uh you know in our in our alternative media set but um to kind of tack on to this bullish retail sentiment if you go and look at pretty much every financial headline go watch cnbc go watch fox business most of the headlines are quite bullish. I, I I'm reading a Walmart stock is bullish. I, I read a coin stock is bullish. I saw a CNBC Bank of America top economist saying this is the best time to buy since 2013. And I'm like, are you know interest rates? We're staring at a five and a half percent terminal rate, and we're at zero percent rates in 2013. So I think I think a lot of the poor retail is is being told a bit of a a wrong story by the mainstream media, possibly for the institutional crowd to hedge it. And poor retail, when you start seeing every headline being bullish and every economist that's popping on TV telling you to buy, um, that is generally the time when you should be, you know, taking a step back and thinking hard about things, especially while a lot of equities are at equal 2023 highs, which is typically the point when some selling might occur. That is interesting. Tinfoil hat, but I, I, I'm... Are you guys buying it? I mean, the the big guys are like, well, you know, we'll come, you know, get every get the little guys to buy, and we'll come in and 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 you know, hedge against it. Rob, we we know it's a practice on Wall Street for institutions to trade against retail order flow. That like that's not a secret, right? 
So the question is, how much farther does it go? And John is probably the best person to talk about this. Well, um, Mark, you, you've cited several times the uh, um, bearishness uh, that uh, the retail had had, and yet the bullishness that institutions have had for at least, I think, over maybe 60 days, Mark, perhaps those two months. It's been that the despite anything else that's going on, the uh, institutions have become more and more bullish just as consumers have been pulling back and putting less money into the market and instead taking money off the table as the market just keeps rising. And that's a, you know, a, a discipline that I'm surprised that the public has, quite frankly. But um, to your point, at, at some level, you're going to have to see the institutions start doing the thing, taking some profits. And one of the ways they do that, of course, is to lure in uh, the public into thinking, just as Nick said, that this is one of the best times to invest. Forget about the fact that in 2013, Nick, it was zero. <laughs> Instead, focus on the fact that right now, um, there are just huge opportunities in the markets, as they might say. And I, I'm with Nick. I don't buy it. I really do not buy it. I, I can come up with reasons why we should go higher, but I can see an awful lot of reasons why we should uh, basically do a reset before we go higher. Interesting, interesting way of looking at it, you guys. B3 Nation, you know, again, not telling you what to do, but but think think carefully before you make those before you make those investments. This is Bulls Bears and Blockchain Twitter Spaces, Sunday edition, 530 Eastern, Tuesday, Thursday, 530 Eastern. Follow us at Get Rev Radio. Tweet out the space and definitely follow all of our speakers and stick around in about 15 minutes for the Beyond B3 show where you guys can participate with Julie Lamb. One more TradFi topic before we go crypto. Um, Mark, this is an interesting one. What is going on? with weather so we've we know this is the this is the you know alex john down in puerto rico i'm in puerto rico a lot we've got the hurricane season coming in um and it's summertime it's hot weather it's hot everywhere what but between the rain and the heat does that have an impact it's got to have an impact on food right it's got an impact on on food supply right what is it doing in the stock market and the commodities market well well you know rob i i, I thought about covering this because it's been, especially on the East Coast and certainly here in the Northeast, man, and man, it has just been raining, raining, raining all summer long from the spring right into the summer. It is pouring rain, cats and dogs right now, uh, actually here in the New York metro area. And of course, this is the time of year where we have uh, our, our old friend El Nino setting in, right? And that's that condition where we have warmer sea surface temperatures, which provides the potential for very heavy rain, significant flooding in the Gulf Coast and the southeastern U.S. We've heard a lot about concern around that in terms of South Florida uh, and, and so many of our friends as part of my uh, favorite part of the world as well. And a lot of what's being forecast, unfortunately, is that the El Nino cycle in 2023 will be, quote-unquote, historically strong, and some meteorologists are comparing it to the El Nino cycle in the 1980s, early 82, 83, which was actually, for those of you that remember, of course, I wasn't born then, but for those of you that remember, um, we don't have the laugh track working, I see, Patrick, uh, but for those of you that remember, it was really, really bad, right? Uh, we had a lot of very bad flooding, we had a lot of damage, we had a lot of hurricanes, it was a bad, bad time of year. So those conditions tend to put utility stocks at risk. Um, so we would be looking in the in the third quarter at the names like CMS Energy, WEC Energy, DTE. These are energy companies, public energy companies that have exposure to those parts of the world. Um, we're also looking, of course, at whether or not uh, you know we could see a very active wildfire season uh, this year on the West Coast. We pray that it doesn't happen, but of course, if our friends in Canada are any indication, we may not be out of the woods there. 
And then the other sector that we watch very carefully, this is going to come as a surprise to nobody, but the insurance industry. If we have a very bad El Nino cycle, if it is as historically strong as has been indicated to be this year, if we do have some serious wildfires, if we wind up with hurricanes and the conditions that El Nino creates, right, for, for hurricanes, and that's sort of why we're talking about El Nino and hurricanes as two separate things. They, they are two separate things, but one creates the conditions for the other. Um, you know, we would be looking potentially uh, at how it might impact some of the insurance company names negatively, of course. So um, stormy weather for the rest of the summer is anticipated not only for vacationers, but also for investors and in names that are impacted by bad weather. Interesting. And could keep your eye on the insurance companies. All right, let's talk a little crypto. Um, Alex, um, Gemini, the Gemini crypto exchange founders, the Winkle Bus twins um, are are. are coming out again this time i'm guessing it's a digital currency group and they're they're saying they committed fraud so so this is the inside crypto drama the crypto bros drama tell us what's going on and what does it actually mean if anything for you know for the for the average crypto investor sure i mean let's you know talk about stormy weathers uh this is stormy weather for you know that's that dates back going to last year um and it's just one of many so yeah rob the latest ongoing chapter from the massive crypto bankruptcies of 2022 uh the winkle vibe because that's how i refer to them that's like you know two guys look the same um have filed the lawsuit against dcg group and its founder barry silver um i do want to preface this whole thing by saying so everybody gets the gravity of it Gemini lost $900 million in customer funds to Genesis when they did file bankruptcy last year. Um, yeah, and and, and give, to give an idea of what Genesis and Genesis was regarded as a very large institutional counterparty in the crypto space under the digital currency group, DCG group, uh, Barry Silver's uh, CEO, they own, uh, you know, they own uh, Coindesk, which is a widely... Uh, one of the most popular, if not the most popular, uh, crypto newspaper, so to speak, online. Um, but this all goes back to the high stakes war of yield on what customers could earn on their assets, uh, which really had its height in 2021 and 2022. Uh, and it brought those yields into double digits with a, a bunch of centralized exchanges. It was predominantly accomplished through the crypto credit markets via companies like Celsius, Voyager, cred and of course genesis which had one of the largest institutional crypto lending books in the space if not the largest most of the time all right so gemini decides they need to get into the yield program they select uh genesis as their yield maker uh, for the customer's funds calling it the earn program and what they do is they loan customer assets to them in turn genesis loans out their customers uh loans it out to their customers which in turn returns yield back to uh, uh, the Gemini customers. This is completely normal practice in a normal space. This pre-procedure of rehypothecation is usually done in trad finance institutional space. It's known as your borrowers on a hedge funds P&L, and it's usually issued by their prime broker via their balance sheet and allows hedge funds to finance their uh, shorts or leverage their long positions. Now, the problem Gemini has is that they're accusing Genesis uh, founder and CEO Barry Silver of outright lying. And we've heard this many a times. People are so sick of hearing this, whether it's 3AC and liars here, liars there. Um, but Barry Silver was considered one of the good guys. Uh, so this is what they, they're saying directly from the lawsuit, uh, is that Silver kept asking Gemini to continue its earn program, even though Barry Silver knew Genesis was, and I quote from the lawsuit, massively insolvent, from a huge hit it took lending the three hours capital uh they go on to say that all of dcg that the dcg announcement of absorbing the three hours capital losses was a complete lie so what happened was when everybody lost out who lent the three hours capitals ponzi scheme uh barry silver came out and said listen digital currency group is going to be okay we absorbed the losses we're that big it's going to be good well <clears throat> We will see where this, uh, where this, uh, I'm sorry, we'll see where this goes. But the public punch is being thrown, I'm sure, going to give a lot of fodder to the hapless regulators. They're going to look for excuses to keep coming down on more and more crypto companies. And to be honest, my opinion, this whole mess 
would be that Cameron and Tyler reach in their own uh, multi-billionaire pockets and make their customers whole because when they can collect whatever they want to repay themselves from the lawsuit, but if they made their customers whole with their own money right now, they would instantly be one of the top reputable crypto uh, exchanges in the world, is my opinion. Um, but Barry Silver looks like he's going down, and this is happening while ETFs were filed, refiled by BlackRock uh, yesterday, I believe, uh, or Friday. Um, along with a number of companies, you got to remember Barry Silver's uh, company filed was one of the first to file Bitcoin ETF. Um, so he's definitely losing traction on the reputational front. It's interesting, and Alex, when you're talking about it, you know, so you're right about making the investors whole. Nobody ever does that, right? I mean, you're saying they should. They're not going to. I mean, it would be amazing if someone ever made their investors whole. But does this is this one more example of of kind of clearing up some of the mess and making a you know a kind of a cleaner path going forward, or is this just gonna is this just further creating that that you know that skepticism on the retail level and as you said the regulators just now have it's just like you've just given them easier things to, to punch at no i think this is i think this is uh two brothers who who are damn pissed off um at a what was a reputable counterparty um you know let's be honest the average investor in crypto is a smaller retail investor the the money that they invest in crypto is usually not the same type of money they invest in equities or other parts of the stock market, it's usually part of their discretionary funding, right? If I went, the average person doesn't go to their wife and say, hey, let's put 10 grand into equities and five grand into crypto. Uh, they usually uh, pull that money out of their pocket. So when they, when something like this happens, the average person loses. The time of these uh, chapter 11, what I call them the, the biggest legal con that the government can do, these chapter 11 bankruptcies, absorb all the money they suck it out give it to the service providers in the end the pennies on the dollar to the creditors it takes a year plus and i think the winkle bosses are sick and tired of the process and now they're just shooting punches all right well let's so keeping that in mind let, let's shift to the last topic here which sort of plays off of it um a washington post article uh late last night i saw it late last night uh, crypto pledged to dethrone Wall Street, but is getting swallowed instead. Alex, you and I talked briefly about this earlier. So the writer's take in B3 Nation, the reason why this caught me as interesting is they pointed out that these big institutional players now stepping in to the crypto space a few years back or, you know, 2013, you know, were like, this is a pon essentially calling it a Ponzi scheme. Now it's digital gold. You know, like Black BlackRock made a little shift. And instead of acknowledging, wow, this shows you this is a real asset class, the Washington Post reporter pointed out that this see, this shows you not how, wow, this was actually not a big Ponzi scheme. That's why they're getting into it. But instead came to the conclusion, it shows you just how weak this space is and almost implied these guys are like vultures, like they're coming in and taking it. Your thoughts on that, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely want Nick to chime in on this as well. I think this is very vulture-esque. Uh, I think um, uh, it, it's not just vulture-esque for BlackRock. Uh, I mean, they, they, I'm going to, you know, harsh words. I think they were very predatory when it came to the uh, aftermath of the housing crisis. They were one of the largest uh, buyers of, of homes, individual homes in the U.S., buying them in swaths. Uh, because they saw what was, you know, their money managers, they saw what was going down the road. I, it was because our housing market was weak, our economy was weak. I think now you're seeing the same type of infiltration into the cryptocurrency uh, markets. Uh, you know, uh, people, there's a lot of people on the other side who wanted to dethrone digital assets. Uh, FTX did a great job imploding it from the inside out. And I will say with the help of uh, the poser, Gary Gensler, and I think you're seeing what's uh, now happening is Wall Street uh, coming in and swiftly taking over. They got the, you know, while crypto's down, they're the ones with the dry powder. They're the ones with the balance sheets. And I think they're taking a lot of the infrastructure away to be able to control the market or try to. Uh, and that's what's happening right now. Schwab, Fidelity, Citadel, BlackRock, you name it. They're, they're banks are getting, you know, automatic uh, ability and licenses to do things in crypto, such as custody, um, where traditional 
you know, crypto native firms that were started on innovation are having to are getting fired over. So I think this is a huge vulnerability and Wall Street is coming to exploit that. So, Nick, bringing you into the conversation, I'm going to be devil's advocate just a little bit. Partly it's a genuine question, though. Um, to what Alex is saying, you know, Fidelity is one of the oldest players. I mean, they are so old school and now they're going to allow digital assets to be traded on the face of it. I might argue Alex is right. They're taking advantage. They want to capture this space, but it's a good thing that they are going to make this space more accessible to people. I never bought that crypto would just take over the traditional financial system. I always thought there'd be an integration. Is this a step toward integration, or is this wholly just going to lead to a small number of people, con uh, you know, c controlling, you know, con trying to control the space? And it may not be a black and white answer. No, and, and I definitely agree with with a lot of points on both sides of that. I think you know you, you can put on you know twenty different tinfoil hats in terms of you know talking about the story of crypto and institutions and retail and who's an infiltrator and who's trying to take down who. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I think you know the easiest extrapolation to make is the conversation we had prior, where typically it is the institution's prerogative to. Do you know talk against something that is making waves amongst the the populace that they can't immediately control or take advantage of? So it serves their purpose to talk ill about it or or take nefarious actions to decrease price action and get in, obviously lower. We could talk about that in a million different ways, but you do make a great point in the sense that you know we've always said and dating back to sixteen and seventeen pre twenty 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 two uh, run up is that you know the next wave and and the really the big kind of uh you know let's call it tsunami would be institutions getting in you know we oh we we knew that that would be quote unquote the saving grace to anyone who bought in low enough to make you know make money so uh to see fidelity you know mining bitcoin since 2014 filing etfs blackrock changing their face jp morgan changing their face everybody changing face you know that that's their job that their job is to make money and so is ours so at the end of the day i can't fault anybody to doing what they what they want to do to to increase their pnl but i do agree with the fact that you know without big institutional money without high net worth individuals without uh global on and off ramp rails this industry will not ever be successful because I do agree with you, Rob, that we will not survive in a vacuum. There has to be integration. Certain cryptocurrencies should be used for transaction of real life value. Certain things should stay on chain, but everybody has to work together. And we need to see those billions and trillions of inflows to see our PL continue to increase. So I cannot fault anybody for trying to make a buck as long as, you know, we're, we're all aware of the risks and what it takes to make that buck. And Rob, let me just say, I remember on a dark and stormy night back in like 2017, Nick and I speaking uh, at a conference in Philadelphia on a panel dedicated to Wall Street. You know, uh, we were both on the institutional side of crypto back then. The, the the narrative back then was we were we were also excited. You know, our clients were were hedge fund clients got looking for a uh, crypto fund brokers and hedge fund administrators and the sort we're so excited for institutional adopters and for those these firms to come in with their capital and and raise you know all the ships in the harbor the, the, what i'm thinking about now is them not coming in in that in that participation way but coming in in that controlling way so yes to nick's point i believe they're coming in like we've always wanted for the last six years, and, and we're finally getting it now. I just think that they're coming in with a different agenda. That's all. So let me ask you a quick quick last question on it, Alex, because I think both sides are can be true. Is there Maybe there was no way they were going to come in if they couldn't do it in a predatory way. But either way, that is how they're doing it. Is there an upside, only a downside? I mean, is there an upside that can come out of this now that they are going to push more if for lack of a better word, liquidity or people into the space, make it more accessible. Can I, sure. even though they're, you know, can you see the upside that can come from that despite the fact that they're trying to Goliath it? I, absolutely, absolutely. There's, there's the, the short sided, uh, short sidedness, and there's the, you know, the, the long tail on this. And the short sidedness in me is going, I'm really happy they're here, right? We were going through some horrible times over the last year. Um, we made it. They're coming in, they're picking up a lot of pieces. They're, they're coming in and solidifying 
uh, all of digital assets um, uh, reputation, lifting it, right? Whether it's uh, cryptos, NFTs, or the sword. But my long tail analysis of this is that there's a potential for this to be bad. Um, so in the short term, I'm happy they're here. I'm happy uh, we're, we're getting a boost from them. Um, I'm just I'm just worried about the long term and keeping a careful eye on it. Well, and that's what we will do right here at Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain, you guys. It's been a fun Sunday show. Um, we do this every Sunday, every Tuesday and Thursday also, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Mark, Alex, John, and Nick Mancini from Trade the Chain. Always good to have you guys. Please follow us at Get Rev Radio. Thanks for joining Rob Nelson, Alex Massioli, Mark Lapresti, and John Nigerian with another great episode of Bulls, Bears, and Blockchain twice a week on Revolution Radio. Whether you're new to the world of Web3 finance or an experienced investor, we've got you covered. Follow us on Twitter at GetRevRadio and visit our website at revolutionradio.io, helping you make smarter financial decisions. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>